Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. This week's guest setlist curator is Mark A. Rodriguez. Mark, a.k.a. the Dead Tape Collector, is known for his Generations Project, which is a sculptural practice that explores themes of cultural ownership, folk art, and technological obsolescence via huge cassette racks with thousands of Grateful Dead tapes. Mark gathers the Dead tapes, copies them the old-fashioned way, and creates colored J-cards for each one. It takes thousands of such tapes to create his sculptures, which are so in demand, buyers like John Mayer have to pre-order them. His anthology, After All Is Said and Done, Taping the Grateful Dead, 1965-1995, is available via the link in the show notes. Mark is currently looking for tapes to finish his collection. The list, which consists of about 160 tapes, the only ones Mark doesn't have, can be found on Mark's Instagram, at deadtapecollector, or you can contact Mark via email at deadtapecollector at gmail.com. Again, both those links are in the show notes. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. This week's prize pack provider is Shop Posta. Shop Posta is a Grateful Dead-centric apparel outfitter run by Peter and his wife, Nina. Since Shop Posta last sponsored a prize pack, the shop has exploded, so much so that, again, John Mayer, patron of the arts, wore Peter's He's Gone shirt on stage during a Dead & Company performance. Peter's original designs, which are often in the spirit of the old lot scene with crossover pop culture figures, generally start as pencil on paper. Check out Shop Posta via the link in the show notes. They usually launch a shirt pre-order and then it's gone, so don't wait around. I personally own every one of Peter's shirts, I think, and I've been stopped so many times on the streets for compliments that I stopped DMing Peter every time because it was, it was getting a bit much. So thank you so much, Peter and Nina. Here's how the game works. We'll play the first part of a Grateful Dead live track, and each contestant will use the messaging system to silently guess which year the performance is from. Contestants, who are all on a video conference together, can message in their guesses at any time during the clip or in the 10 seconds after it concludes. Whoever is furthest from the correct year is eliminated. The last two deadheads standing will hear three tracks, and whoever is closest to the correct years in aggregate wins. We've got our returning champ Ben here with us, and we'll meet the rest of the deadheads in a moment, but first, without further ado, the Grateful Dead. I, I see a light. I see a light. He wants unbroken chain. Yes. Yes, he does. He does. He's got the air Give me the leftover from Harry. Give Harry. me his leftover. Give us less re return from the reverb unit, okay? Or whatever it is, the, uh, the Omni Squasher, the Quadrupressor, or whatever the hell we're using on us vocally. Like me now, right now, my boy. Are voice. you doing unbroken first? Yes. Very nice. No, but the point is, Harry, we don't know when there's much reverb on it. There's too much. It's, it's, uh, it's too much. Excellent choice. It's filling up our, re our return, you know what I mean? It's off. What am I hearing? What do you mean you don't know? Listen to it. There's still some reverb on there of some kind. Listen to it. Hello? Hello? Now it's, now it's drier. It's also more present. We're almost there. there. We're almost there. Yeah, well, any amount of leakage. No, 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 don't change it. We've got to have it the way it's going to be when we perform. Don't get cute, Harry. You're not that fucking smart. All right, the guesses are in. That one on archive was called Steve Gets Chords Up, and it was at the Omni in Atlanta on March 29th, 1995. Mark. 
Tell us about that pick. I I wanted to track down this series of recordings that were uh, made from their ear monitors. Tracking that down, I went through all the ear monitor recordings that are on archive. And there was one specific soundbite that I thought I would use, but this one felt like a good way to begin because they're kind of talking about what they're going to play first. And I wanted to kind of set the selections that I made into a kind of trajectory of like a show. So that seemed like a good beginning point and also kind of like the hardest soundbite first. So do you know how those recordings surfaced? So they got ear monitors that, you know, are they so they could converse with each other and also listen to each other. And it just so happened that the way that that was broadcast was on a shortwave FM wavelength. So people could actually record the FM broadcast if they weren't even in the, you know, stadium at the time. So it's just kind of one of those weird things where either it was recorded by a roadie, which is what archive says in some cases, but I believe that other people also picked it up on an FM signal. Sorry, again, I tried to make it difficult. You know, these guys are uh, very good at this and they all guessed 1995. They all got it. Wow. All right, we'll start with our training champ, Ben, who's 42 from Bend, Oregon, by way of Boyertown, Pennsylvania. Ben, what gave it away? Uh, just the the references to Unbroken Chain is kind of what I went with for that one. Yeah, that was a cool track. Mike is 48 from Richmond, Virginia. Mike also guessed 95. Did you also hear them mention, Jerry mentioned Unbroken Chain? Yeah, that's all it was. I heard Unbroken Chain and I, they only played it in 95, so there was no other way to go with it. Also, my my girlfriend and I were just talking about that show. She went to it, but didn't get in. She got a bunk ticket. So she got, she had to wait outside and her all her friends went in and they were freaking out. They were like, holy shit. You know, so if the whole show was like this, I'm screwed, man. I, no. I got that one, but I'm fucked. <laughs> it gets a little bit easier. Brett is 29 from Holland, Pennsylvania. Brett, anything you want to add here? Uh, no, you, you guys basically covered it in terms of the uh, hints, the in-ear monitor kind of stuff. I heard a fair amount from 95. Actually, I haven't really listened to much from 95 for a long time now because I've really been enjoying their prime. But I would say that uh, I, I, I think I listened to one from July. Uh, a lot of that show. There's a show from July, that the one where there's a riot and they break through the fence and everything. That that there's a an ear monitor recording of that. You can kind of hear some of the commotion going on, kind of a low moment in dead history. Yeah, Deer Creek. That's right. And Ricardo is forty seven from Portland, Oregon. Tell us about uh, your ninety five guest, Ricardo. Just like everybody else, it was the unbroken chain that gave it away. At first, I was like waiting for a song to come, and I, and then I'm just like, what if? Like, cause I know they talked about playing unbroken before they busted out in 95. And I was like, what is this? Like a complete, but I was like, but then it, even the, the sound of the background sounded 95 and it was like unbroken. It's gotta be 95. So that was my guess. Well, the dead tape collector starts out with a track that was never on any tape. And he's got another really good one for you guys. Let's hear it.
right. So that was C.C. Ryder at Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on December 1st, 1979. Mark, tell us about that C.C. Ryder. Well, so that's the first C.C. Ryder ever played. That show is like kind of amazing. Like the energy is quite phenomenal. It's probably one of the better or probably one of the best C.C. Riders I've heard. That was a really good C.C. Rider. Thanks, Mark. There are two people who are equally close and are on to the next round. Mike and Brett, both guessed 1981. Brett, we'll go to you. Tell us about 81. A lot of times when I'm thinking about this stuff, I'm, I'm, here, I'm listening to Bobby. I really listen to Bobby a lot. And I could hear his guitar, and it was like, it was so between 79 and 81. For some reason, it, it, was, it was down to those two. And I just thought, I thought CC was probably more common in 81. So that, that, that's why I went with that. Um, but, you know, obviously, Mark, great, great version there of, of, of CC. So you cue in on Bobby even more than Jerry when you're trying to distinguish yours. Yeah, because, you know, I, I kind of think about the size of the venues. And as you get it later into the 80s, Bobby's, the whole sound gets bigger, but Bobby's guitar gets very like firm and big. And that's what, that was the first dead stuff I listened to was like late 80s. It was uh, Postcards of the Hanging. So I could hear the, Bobby's sound thinner. So it was either late 70s or early 80s with a thin Bobby sound. So that, that's how I think about it. Cool. And Mike, you also guessed 81. Yeah, I was kind of clued in on Bobby too. At first, thought, my very first thought was 78. And then I was like, but I don't think CC Ryder was played that early. So then I thought exactly what you thought. And I was like, 81 is what I remember the early version of that song being. So I went with, then I was like, but it sounds like 79 because I hear, I hear those keys, you know, that plinkiness of, of the keys. And I was like, but I just, I played it safer. I went on 81 side just because they played so much of it. They played that a lot then. Safe bet, playing the game. Will Ricardo guessed 82 and he's on the next round because our defending champ, Ben, guessed 89. Ricardo, nice work. Tell us about 82. Well, I was going back and forth between 81 and 82. I forgot they even played CC Rider in 79, but that makes sense. But I, I was knew it was early, but I was trying to get a little more Brent, less Bobby in that recording. But um, yeah, it was 81 or 82. And at the last minute, I went 82. You're on the next round. Nice pull. And Ben, 89. Yeah, that was a tough one. Definitely kicking myself a little bit, just uh, thinking at one point, like, man, were they even playing CC Rider at that point? But what I was cluing into was, um, I mean, definitely two drummers, listening for the keys, catching Brent, but they're like Jerry's tone kind of towards the end of that solo just reminded me of a couple shows from 89, just with that, that tone when he really gets up the neck there and just kind of took me in that direction. and. Yeah, that was tough. Ben, do you have a definitive take on CC Rider? <laughs> oh man, I don't know what to say about CC Rider. Like CC Rider is not my go-to, but there's a lot of tracks. There's a lot of versions in the early '80s where you can tell they're into it and they're feeling it, and Bobby's loving it. And yeah, it can bring a good time. So it's not uh, go to the bathroom and it's not run back from the bathroom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's in that that mid ground. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I like the early versions too. I, I just like, I'll just yell to it. Like when Bobby really goes crazy with it, I'll just like, Stacy. I'll just like really yell. At it. I'll just go crazy with it. But yeah, it's the early versions that bring the energy. The one on the 80, 81 Madison Square Garden release, that one is sick. Yep. That's what I was thinking of, kind of. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure chatting. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing where it goes. Good luck, everybody. And thanks, Mike, for making this happen, man. This is really awesome. It's an honor. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for playing. So Mike, Brett, and Ricardo are on to the next round. Let's hear Mark's third pick. Fuck, man. <laughs> Where did you find that? Mark, man. Woo, what is that? <laughs> that was a that was like a a hunt. That was a, a long hunt. That was uh something different. The guesses are in. It was Friend of the Devil at Five Seasons Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on July 4th, 1984. Happy Independence Wild Day. Friend of the Devil, Mark. Uh yeah, tell us about it. Well, so I was trying to find a friend of the devil with Brent playing like the synthesizer fiddle and I couldn't, I've heard it before and I just don't notate what year it is. So I was, I literally went through, I think 80 through 85, all friend of the devils and specifically at the three minute 345 to four minute mark where that solo hits because I was looking for that one effect and I couldn't find it, but I found this one and I was like, this is so bizarre. Like you have Brent like humming with the solo and then you have whoever's playing guitar. I think it's scary with like the weirdest effect on that part too. Like he doesn't even continue playing with that effect 
after the the break that I set, but I just thought it was very odd, but also very beautiful and cool to listen to. So you said you went through every friend of the devil. What database were you searching? Oh, so I was going through setlists.net, which is one site that I use to cross-reference for all my tapes and like trying to figure out if like the tape that I have is correct or et cetera, et cetera. So I, it has a nice uh, function of searching for the song played, kind of like um, dead bass, but, but, you know, digital. Okay, so if you're making a sculpture and you really need every date to be correct, what database do you find is most reliable? Is it setlist.fm? No, actually, dead dead lists is the most reliable because it gives me all the sources of every tape in circulation. Someone recently, actually the first person in like probably a year or so contacted me and was like, oh, I have this tape. And it had a partial first set and a longer second set. And my list says that I only need the first set. And I recognize that my list currently is a little bit disorganized. I kind of let it fall to pieces. But in looking at that, I was like, huh, that's weird. Why would I need the first set if this is like four songs? It's obviously a partial, but I looked at dead lists and it's like the only circulating tape is the partial first set with the longer second set. So that helped me, you know, know that that tape is the only legitimate source of that date that I could possibly ever come into contact with. So there's 160 tapes you're looking for. Those are to complete the next sculpture? That's not for the next sculpture. That's just to complete the whole collection, which is been the goal since I started in 2010 was to collect every show on tape that was possible to collect to complete, you know, the whole oeuvre. Everyone listening, please look at your list. 160 left. That's really cool, Mark. Brett got it exactly. 1984. Hell of a poll, Brett. Well, I uh, was going back and forth, back and forth between 83 and 84. And what sold me on 84 was just the weirdness. Mid-80s got strange. It got strange. They, they really experimented with the, with the sound a lot. I mean, I've heard a lot of 84 songs, or, or a lot of 84 shows, but not far from all of them. But, but I just know I, I've heard some strange stuff. in in, in Brent's keys, actually, this time was, was, more, was more it. than you hear, hear Bobby in there a bit. With um, a little bit of a heavier rhythm, but not nothing super super solid that yet that would come later on in the eighties. So just because it was so such a curiosity, you're like, oh, this belongs in eighty four. Yeah, well, it could have been eighty three too. It's just it, I, it, I don't know. Something told me eighty four. <laughs> Man, trust the gut. Nice work, Brad. Very cool. <laughs> Mike is also on to the final because he guessed 79 and Ricardo guessed 76. So Mike, did you think that was just very early Brent? I did. And I also thought he was going to fuck with us a little bit because he, I knew he was going to make it hard. I thought he might go back to back. You know, Brent was so high up in the mix, kind of like he, he was when they first started him, you know, in, in 79. So, but then my Achilles heel is, is mid eighties. I don't, I just don't, I didn't have any in my collection really. I had, I went I had heavy on the 70s and then late 80s into like early 90. Um, but I just didn't have a lot of eight, early 80s stuff. Like especially 84. I didn't I don't even think I think I had like three tapes from 84. Are there fewer mid 80s tapes in circulation, Mark? 
I will say that uh, what Mike said kind of uh, rings true to me and my experience that the early 80s is a little bit of a absence in collections. Some collections are, you know, work that I have encountered are were quite heavy in 80s. It just depends. But in general, it's like a smaller collection will have a specific lean towards the 70s usually and a more comprehensive collection is going to have i mean like by its nature it's comprehensive but um a larger collection probably will have more 80s early 80s in it but in that regard you might not get like you know 85 in there and you probably might not get like 83 and 82 yeah, now that you say it, 84 does seem to pop up a good amount. Ricardo, 76. My head was spinning on that one. I should have heard the Brent Keys. I knew it was a Brent Keys, but in the female voice, Brent sounding like a female. is like I was stuck on Donna, and I was like, well, maybe Keith was doing weird stuff. Yeah, I was. that was a tough one. I was just like completely lost and spinning on that one. Yeah, you are far from the first guest of the year contestant to mix up Donna and Brent. But Ricardo, tell us, how'd you get into the dead? So um, I graduated high school in 94. I started hanging out with this new group of friends who I met through my older, older sibling, and we all worked at the same pizza place. One of the guys in that friend group um, was about three years older than me. His name was Jakin. He was big into the Grateful Dead. But summer in 94, I was going to Lollapalooza. I was listening to bands like Nine Inch Nails and Jane's Addiction. Grateful Dead was nowhere close to my radar at all. Flash forward to fall 94, my friend James crashed at my house after we stayed up late closing the pizza shop. The next day, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see the Grateful Dead with Yakin. Didn't think much of it. Yakin showed up at my house to pick up James and was like, I got an extra ticket to the Grateful Dead. You want to come? And I said, yes. Mostly out of curiosity, like I didn't know much Grateful Dead's music at all, except for hearing Touch of Grey over and over again on MTV when I was a kid. That was about it. I just thought of Grateful Dead, like classic rock, like Rolling Stones or Eagles. I was just like, yeah, I'll go. And I, I remember I made plans with my parents to go visit my grandma that day. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to go see grandma. I'm going to go see the Grateful Dead with Yakin. And my mom's response was like, you like the Grateful Dead? And my response was, I don't know if I like the Grateful Dead. I'm going to just check him out. He's got an extra ticket. So as soon as we hit the Cap Center Landover, Maryland parking lot, I was like amazed immediately. Like, what is this? Like the scene. Um, Yakin was going around telling everybody, like, it's my first show. And I remember these two heads that were parked near us was like, oh, first show. Let's take them down to Shakedown. So I'm getting this like tour Shakedown and uh, super cool. Once we were in the show, Yakin was a spinner. So he was like straight into the hallways and the portal spinning. My f- other friend, James, was like ridiculously high on mushrooms, just like st- stuck at the seat, like big grin on his face, not moving. So I just like wandered the venue, checking it all in. And my mind was blown. Definitely a once in a lifetime opportunity to find myself at a Grateful Dead show not having any preconceived ideas of what to expect. I never even heard the term jam band at that point. I didn't know what a jam band was. And 
was on the bus ever since. Um, I guess after that, I got obsessed with the Grateful Dead. I was buying every CD that I could get a hold of. I was picking up issues of Relics. By the time I saw my second show in 95, I knew the music really well. Yeah, and I did probably about 17 shows in 95. And uh, and then after Jerry passed, I stayed on Grateful Dead tribute bands and all the post-Jerry projects and been on the bus since. When your friend went into the hallway to spin, she's like, wait, you brought me here and you're not even going to go into the main area. You're going to sit in the concourse and spin. Was there a conversation about that? Oh, no. He just was in there spinning. And then, but see, I saw everybody else doing it too. And, and I, and like, I just didn't really like think much of it. I was just like, okay, that's what he's going to do. And, um, and then I went, I just went to my, uh, my seats and then I started wandering too. Cause I was like, that's what you do. I'm just going to wander around and check it out. So what was the appeal in the end? I think everything, I think, I think I could tell right away that like there was this huge connection between the band and the audience and the audience played off the band and the energy of everybody, just how everybody was on their feet. Everybody was into the music. It was like nothing I've ever experienced before. It's not like I walked away recognizing a single song I heard because I had no context of anything I was hearing, but it was, it was the energy in the band with the audience that I think like got me for sure. Cool. Ricardo, thank you so much for, for coming on guest of the year. It was so much fun. Um, I should have known that was eighties, but uh, Mark, you were bringing it tonight for sure. Those have, those have been some tough ones. So it was a lot of fun and I'll stick around and listen. Thanks guys so much. Mike and Brett are going on to the three song finals. The least number of years off in aggregate wins the shop post a prize pack. Thank you again. Peter Nina for sponsoring this week's prize pack. Let's hear the first song of the finals. I'm a little concerned that we haven't gotten to the difficult ones yet. That was a drums at Spartan Stadium, San Jose State University, on April 22nd, 1979. Tell us about that drums, Mark. So that drums, kind of like the CC Rider shows, a first, but for the equipment used, it's the first show reportedly where the Beast 
appeared in concert. So I also thought it kind of sounded a little bit more 80s leaning. So I kind of thought it might be tricky. But in the background, you can hear Jerry be like, get around the beast, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, but that might slide by pretty easily. Geez, Brett got it exactly, 79, and uh, Mike guessed 80. So these guys are up to your challenge, Mark. Brett, tell us about that 79 poll. That's legendary. I was thinking Egypt. I could hear those drop that theme in there from uh, Olin Argid, and that, that drumming was still in there. So I'm like, uh, and then I could hear a bit of that. There, there was a bit of an extra sort of sound in there as well. So I figured it was, because there were some early, of course, drums in 78 that had that, that theme very, um, just, they would kind of just go into that for a bit. But I heard sort of that, that additional sound in there. I didn't catch the beast thing in there. I actually didn't even really know about that, to be honest. So interesting to find out about that. Do you go back to those Egypt shows? I know there's people have a lot from takes on them and the quality of the shows versus the spectacle. Yeah, I, I I went through the entire '78 year uh, recently, and the early the first the first couple uh, Egypt shows are unlistenable. I tried, I tried, I, I tried to get through them. It's just yeah, this is horrible. But the last one oh, they nailed. It's, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just they didn't have their sound system. They had to make do with what they had, and you know you you do what you, you, you can. But I mean. The last one, I guess they got it right, so or right enough to to uh, deliver a great show. So give the prize to Mike. This guy doesn't like Egypt. <laughs> it just <laughs> they admit that they're terrible there. They 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 oh, they, they admitted they, they they that that wasn't any good until uh, again until the last one. But oh yeah, found a fail. I mean, you have one drummer with a cast, so yeah, yo, know, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, you know. By my ear, it's not very good. <laughs> Mike, and you were only one year off. Tell me about 1980. Felt like 78 a little bit, and it did have that kind of um, Egypt feel to it. It had a little bit of that rhythm devil kind of early 80s thing. I don't know. I, just, I, was, I was in between 78 and 81, and I just kind of went between them with 80. I, I, didn't, I, I don't know enough about 79 drums. To, to be able to say that was what it was. And I also felt weird about the fact that I've been throwing 79 out. Like we had a 79 and I guess 79. I wasn't going to do it again <laughs> three times in a row. So I guess 80. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, you're an artist and an art history teacher. And I'm wondering how you got into the dead and if you incorporate the dead into your art or teaching style or both. It definitely fits into what I teach because I play music all the time. Actually, I play music every single morning for the entire school because we have, the kids have to go through these weapon scanners things now um, every day. And so as they're coming in, I'm like at the front of the school and I'm playing music all the time. So it's, I, do, I put a big variety out there, but every now and then I play the dead and people are like, what the hell is this? And they don't know what it is. Teenagers don't know that shit now. Um, but when I was a teenager, that's how I got into it. I don't even remember how it started, but it's like everyone in the neighborhood just started listening to the dead at the same time. The first tape was 10, 1990, Berlin show. And I remember that Scarlet Fire just lit me up and I was like locked in from that point forward Then started collecting. I knew a shit ton about the dead before I ever went to a show. I did all the research and had more tapes than most of my friends. I do, I do things a little bit obsessively. Like I love collections. I love, 
just nerding out on data. So that the Grateful Dead had so much of it. Um, I had volumes of Dead Bass, got it every year, so I would keep up with everything. So I had a, a good buddy, um, equally nerdy, named Gustin, who, by the way, was at that time dating the girl that I'm currently dating. So it's kind of, it's a weird full circle. It's pretty cool. Um, and she's been helping me study for these things and she's really good. She could compete on this show. She's good. So anyway, yeah, I mean, it's, it just became a thing and I, it, I wrote it through the whole, you know, I've always been a deadhead. You, I don't think you can not be once you start that, right? It's like, if you love the dead, you're going to be a deadhead for forever. I think I just love the culture more than anything. I, when I, the first show that I went to was at, um, can't remember which one it was, if it was Dean Dome 93 or if it was the, the Jerry show at Hampton. But um, once I got around those people in that lot, I was like, these are my people, man. This, the, the acceptance and I don't know, just the kindness of it all. I loved it. Then I started quickly. Like I was like, this is awesome. These people are making all this money, doing all these cool things. And I was, I was an artist. So I started making tape covers, which is kind of interesting because I'm all, currently I'm a photographer also. And the guy last week, not last week, but two weeks ago was the photographer who photographed all of the images that I was drawing on these tape covers that, and now here we are with an artist who makes work out of tape collect. I and mean, it's just really cool to be a part of this thing. So I appreciate you bringing me on. The great Bob Minkin. Yeah. Yeah. It's just great to have you on the same time as Mark here, Mike and Mark. Actually, I'm wondering that reminded me when you are placing tapes on this wall of several thousand tapes, how do you decide where to put each tape? Is it aesthetics of the J card? Is it chronology? Yeah. Well, chronology rules supreme always. So uh, everything is chronologically ordered. As far as the J card, if I'm selecting tapes that already exist, I try to think of how the everything's working together, but I won't know until the end. So it's a little bit of a mystery until I kind of complete that whole thing. But then I make J cards myself. And I usually um, pick out a palette based off of, you know, paper options. Uh, and then I kind of think about a theme I want to approach. And I usually make like clip art manually, kind of Xerox style. And uh, it's kind of, I mean, this you can't see usually. You can only see the spine. So you don't see the um, the other part of the artwork that I'm making there. But it's a little bit... Uh, leaving most of that up to chance. I think there's only been one one color scheme. I was like, oh, this is like a little bit obnoxious. But in general, I've kind of dialed it in so that like I'm not I'm not taking too many risks with like that sort of thing. So I try and not be ostentatious. Like I could choose like a bunch of J cards that are just like very vibrant, but then you have to think of their placement in this weird grid and like if they're next if they end up being next to each other because of the chronology which i can't really predict then they might bring in too much visual attention so like you know there's any any number of things that can happen during the process and then even afterwards sometimes i end up replacing certain tapes if it doesn't look right mike what was your j card aesthetic Mine were um, on white cardstock, all hand drawn by me. They, they, the fronts of them, there were maybe one or two, I think, that someone had given me that I hadn't replaced yet. But most of them were all done by me. If I got, if I got tapes from somebody else, I would replace the J card immediately. 
what about it made you want to throw away someone else's J card and put your own stamp on it? Did you enjoy the process or did you want the end result? Being an artist, you know, you, you want to have, you want your hands on it. You want to make sure that it's yours. I mean, I did, I did honestly believe that that collection of tapes was, was a, a, a work of art. Um, I didn't see it aesthetically as a work of art all the way, you know, not, not the way that you do, Mark, because I wasn't thinking like that yet. I was just a teenager. Um, I hadn't developed as an artist yet. I didn't know what that meant. You know, I didn't know how to think all that well. I could draw anything you put in front of me. I could draw it and make it look realistic, but I wasn't, I wasn't on that level yet that it took me a little while to get there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I did look at it and think that it was, it was a work of art and I wanted to control it and make sure that it looked the way I wanted it to. I think the same, like when I was collecting tapes, I mean, not, I don't think I was as rigorous as you were, Mike, but, um, especially not, not till later, I think as an artist, like you have to develop a lot of patience first and foremost to like get through to, you know, completing what it is you set for yourself. But, you know, I think tape trading in like the, in the mid nineties at that time, there were so many weird like eight bit or 16 bit templates available per download that you could use. And if you had a color printer, it would make it look really snazzy, but I was really obsessed with like Rick Griffin's like tech text on his posters. So like my, my tapes, I think one of them might be in the book. Actually, it's like this crazy, like illegible script that I ripped from him and it just like I was so proud of that but it's like looking back on it it's like oh this is like awful awful stuff but that's what I would do you know that's how I would make those my own I guess yeah while we're on this topic Mark I'm wondering how you went from being a tape collector to realizing that when arranged a certain way tapes could be incredibly evocative and truly a work of art how did that evolution occur well it occurred just out of a conversation I was having with my friend Matt and I mean this is years you know in the 90s I collected tapes I was more involved in like jam band uh that scene and then I kind of dropped out for a while and I kind of feel like in terms of like the trajectory of Grateful Dead like Today, we, you know, you, you look at the Grateful Dead and it's like such a, you know, their legacy is like almost like pop at this point. It's kind of interesting um, to see that happen as a result of like 2015 and fairly well and that momentum kind of exploding out from that. But like, you know, in 2010, I feel like this, the Grateful Dead scene was like pretty sleepy although there's like still a bunch of deadheads around like it it kind of was like i don't think underground's like a good term but it definitely was like still more subcultural than i think it is today and so my friend and i were kind of discussing all the different ways like artists could approach maybe like the grateful dead and fish and if you could actually turn that into an art piece and I thought about our conversation more and I was like, I could just start by like collecting tapes because no one wants this right now. Like no one is, you, you know, you could get on Craigslist, you know, you could see people were just giving it away. Like they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have a tape player anymore. 
uh, technology had re replaced the audio cassette at that point. And the fact that the subculture was a little bit sleepy, I feel like it was just like an opportune time to gather tapes, basically gather material. And I didn't really have any idea set out for a while. I think until like, I think like 2015, actually, I was like, okay, I, I kind of can see a way to work with like all the stuff I've accumulated. Well, you may not have known where you're going initially with the project, but clearly your instincts were spot on because it's resonating with so many people. Thank you, Mark. Brett has zero points going in the next round. Mike has one. Let's hear the next song. I walk you out in the morning to today. All right, the guesses are in. It was Adu at Meadowlands in East Rutherford, New Jersey on March 30th, 1988. Mark. I mean, as you can hear, this is a phenomenal breakdown within the song Morning Dew. Like, there's no real flub. You can feel the emotion kind of just burst out of Jerry. And the backstory of me encountering that or just thinking about it was um john ammons who i interviewed for the book who was a taper we would occasionally like just kind of throw certain dates at each other just it would be like oh check this out and it would just be like random text sometimes and he'd be like check this thing out and so one time he sent me this video of this morning do which was shot by Justin Kreutzman. And he's like, tell me like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but basically it was like, check out Jerry's like reaction to his playing. Like he's so just like kind of a kid, just like loving his own stink. And he like looks over at Brett and he's like, did you check that one out? You know, after he just does the run and it's pretty cool to watch. Cause you're like, God, like <laughs> he just really was like feeling it. And so in listening to it again, I was like, oh, it's just just kind of a cool minute of like pure emotion. Awesome. Well, Brett was closer. He guessed 87 and Mike guessed 83. What'd you hear there, Brett? That uh that late 
later 80s Bobby guitar. Uh, I'm going to be the Bobby guitar guy. I love it. Honestly, when I started listening to that music, that's the guitar I heard first. And then I heard Jerry. I appreciate him so much. And I really thought 87, 88 is it, it, it sounded very similar. And I'm not surprised. I guess it was earlier 88. Uh, so maybe the sounds could bleed over a bit. And yeah, I heard Brenton there too with the, uh, with the organ and yeah. And the, and the just shredding. So figure 87, 88, I guess I'm not surprised by that, but great version. I'll have to, I'll have to check that one out. I don't think I, I might not have heard that one yet. Do you play guitar, Brett? Not really. I, I've, I've played around a little bit with lessons a little bit, but I, I don't really play. I mean, I, I, I kind of want to get more into it. It'd be something I'd want to do, but. Yeah. Sounds like you have the ear for it. What caught you about Bobby's tone and uh, playing initially, even more than Jerry? I think it's just how he kind of laid down like the canvas where everyone else could play on top of. He's sort of like, I mean, I, I love uh, JGB, um, but I miss him. I miss him. I'm like, I, I need that other guitar, that that backing guitar there. So so everyone else can uh, play on top of and have their fun. And everyone does have a lot of fun, especially on that version of Morning Dew. But 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 Bobby's guitar is just that steady, like, you know, he 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 provides it. I mean, of course, Phil, too. Everyone, I think a lot of people have, uh, appreciate Phil. And rightfully so, but you know, I love giving Bobby his flowers. Nice pull. And Mike guests eighty three. Tell us, Mike. I don't know, man. I got lost there for a minute. Um, <laughs> it was beautiful, though. I, re- I mean, the recording was so clean. I loved it. Um, I had re- I wrote down eighty six at first because it was like eighty six, seven, eight that realm for me. Again, look at my tape wall. There's just not a lot there. Um, I didn't go to those. You know, I just didn't. That's not where I went. Um, there was something about this, the the energy of it, that like heightened energy that made me feel like 83 might've been it. Like they might've gotten a little bit lit and just felt it because he was, he was in it emotionally on that one. Nice, Mike. Brett, how did you get into the dead? Um, my, my dad, when I was really young, exposed me to all kinds of classic rock stuff. And, you know, we, we'd, we'd go down to the shore and that's how we say it over here, down the shore. And we'd go down the shore, and and uh, he'd be playing tapes and stuff like that, various mixes and and, and stuff. And uh, it's great stuff. I mean, everything from sixties, seventies, eighties, all these like hits and stuff like that. But um, I, I think he, I think he played Postcards of the Hanging, some some of those Dylan covers. And I'm like, and then I like, all right, give me that CD. I got to listen to the thing for myself. That sounded different. And this was when I was like 10 or, 10 or 11 years old, I think probably. And, and I'm like, this, this is how music should, shout, should sound like. This is how it should sound like to me. And that's why I just became obsessed. I mean, it's just like, wow, this, this is special. <laughs> Truly. Awesome, Brett. And lastly, Mark, before we go on to the final song of the finals, which, uh, Unless Mike ties it up, Brett's currently up by five. Uh, Mark, we heard how you went from a tape collector to, you know, an artist, a, a sculptor of dead tapes. But how did you get into the dead initially? I mean, I was always, you know, 
Uh, my mom had a huge record collection, mostly of like, you know, late 60s era bands. And, you know, I would cruise through that collection. And at some point, it was like, what else? Like, what else is there? And I think I just randomly got some CDs from like, I think like BMG or something. I think it was like skeleton and it wasn't skeletons in the closet. It was a long strange trip, which is like an odd double CD. And um, I'm trying to think of when I got into tapes, probably around the same time that I, I kind of got into fish was like that, you know, like that allowed me connections to people that had those two types of bands on tape. And then that kind of like widened the breath a little bit. In your book, After All is Said and Done, Taping the Grateful Dead, 1965 to 1995, when did you decide and what was the inspiration behind turning your sculptures into a book that, you know, everyone could enjoy? I think, you know, kind of feeling this responsibility to somehow broadcast and share these collections somehow was uh, always a desire. And I think at some point, I think it was like 2016 or 2017. I was like, oh, I can, I think I can actually like propose this as like a, a legitimate project to a legitimate publisher. And it felt like a, a good thing to me to do, I guess. I mean, because the sculpture, you only see the spines, you don't see the actual art on the J card. And I have, I have like scans of every single tape that goes into every single sculpture. So it's like, you know, around 3000 tapes per sculpture and there's nine sculptures. So it's 27,000 plus scans of like all these J cards. I would love to put out like a volume for each gen sculpture, but it would be a design nightmare and also be like, you know, three inches thick or something. But, you know, the book was like kind of the best I could do with, you know, what's available. And then also it offered me an opportunity to kind of do the interviews, which I'm really proud of. It gave me like the excuse to like chase people down and interview them, which was such a treat to be able to talk to people that I, you know, always read in these books you know, when I was a teenager in the library and it's like, oh, now I'm talking to like Dennis McNally about X, Y, and Z and going through old documents and finding all this weird internal memorandums about, you know, what to do about tapers and that phenomenon. I thought it was just interesting to be able to like edit that into some kind of digestible form and share it with everyone. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for these great picks. Thank you for curating. And you have another one, unless uh, Mike can make up some ground on Brett. Let's hear it. Good luck, everyone. You're going to hate me for this one.
Not Fade Away at Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland, California on February 16th, 1988. Mark, why did you want to feature uh, the fan-led outro of Fade Away and why that one? Well, A, to be a total asshole, obviously. <laughs> but um, I was just trying to find, like, what are these moments where, like, you know what it is, but you can't, lo- you know, it's hard to really locate a time period. And I don't know. I've always just loved that uh, when Not Fade Away goes into the encore and the audience is just so, like, pumped and you hear the clapping seals just do the, you know, the, the beat and it goes off and it just, like, this isn't, like, the best example of it and I wasn't really doing my due diligence but it's like the clap just goes like it's like a echo it's like this really crazy thing to listen to if you kind of try and lose yourself in it so cool another 88 and brett guessed 89 and mike guessed 93 so brett's the new champion guest of the year congrats brett very impressive showing it from top to bottom what were you hearing there i, I just went with something that i kind of knew I was thinking 4th of July, 89. I knew they ended with Not Fade Away, and I knew that they had a, there was an awesome clap, 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 Not Fade Away at the end. So I figured it was probably relatively close enough to that. Like my Mark let on, it, there's been a lot of those. So I, I figured it was somewhere in the late 80s. Yeah, what was the range you put on it? As soon as you heard what was going on, what was the range it could have been in your mind? Probably 87, 90. That's automatically where it was to me. Why not the 90s? I would have included 1990 as well, but I felt like there was that that energy with Brent that, I don't know, you know, may, maybe it wasn't as much as you went further on into, into the 90s that, uh, that, 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 that like enthusiasm. I don't know. You didn't hear any playing there, but it's just that there was that, there's that extra joy. I don't know. That came through to me. Nice pull, Brett and Mike. Ninety three. Yeah, I mean, how how many times have I ever listened to a show and then listened to the crowd after the show with what you know? What I mean, I don't do that, and I didn't get to go to any shows in eighty eight. That was way before my time, so I wouldn't have known that by being there. So I don't know. That's a impressed, Brett. You have like Rain Man skills. It's good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like you killed that. I don't know how you did that. I'm a little obsessed. Yeah, you're gonna be a force on guest here. I can feel it. Uh, I'm excited to have you back again. And Mark, thank you for the very eclectic set list. It was super cool. Mike, do you mind if I plug somebody real quick? This, of course. I, I, there's this one, because I don't want to leave before I do it. Uh, just because I know the audience here is, is so great. But um, a buddy of mine, Chuck, has this company that he works so hard at. It's called Four Direction Boutique. Really good stuff. I mean, he, he does a lot of work for like string cheese. And um, he's got, you know, I've seen Wavy Gravy wearing one of his shirts and stuff like that. So he's He's got he's got he's got the name out there, but I would love for him to blow up and, and have even more because of this show. Because you guys, you do a great job. I know that like I'm wearing one of the Section 119s because of this show. You know, like the things that you throw out there, I love. So I appreciate. Thanks, that. Mike. Well, send me that link and I'll put it in the uh, show notes so everyone can click to it. Um, and that's really nice of you to say. I appreciate it, man. Also in the show notes, all of Mark's links, including his list and his book and his uh, website and Instagram, Dead Tape Collector. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and thanks, guys, for putting up with these weirdo selects. All right, thanks, everyone. 
And thank you so much for listening. For all the show links, including our YouTube channel, go to guestthear.net. And if you want to be a contestant on the show, sponsor the show, or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at Thanks again to Shop Hosta for sponsoring this week's prize pack. I just truly can't tell you how big of a fan I am of Peter's work. And uh, Peter and Nina run like a great, great shop. Again, check out their website, links in the show notes and their Instagram. So you can see all the past designs. You can see I'm not just blowing smoke here. And again, don't wait around when the drop happens because, yeah, usually it's just gone afterwards. Unless it's like, a, I think they brought back the, the He's Gone shirt after, you know, they sold God knows how many of them after Mayor wore it because, I mean, I was on Facebook and they were ripping it off. That's how in demand it was. So, and if you're not on Instagram, first of all, God bless you. And second, you can sign up for email notifications about shop posts next drop so you can still stay up to date. Excited to see what they do next. Thanks again. And shout out to Dylan for drawing the posters and James and Jack for helping out behind the scenes. Thanks to Nob for suggesting Mark here as a curator. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to the Amazing Tapers, whose recordings made the show possible. Big, big congratulations to Brett, our new Bobby expert, and to other contestants. Thanks for playing. And remember, it's all one song anyway. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night.